This is episode 257 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am very pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. I've got Jay Ryan Straddle with us to talk about his third novel that just came out this year. It's called Saturday Night at the Lakeside Supper Club, uh, which is great because the title actually tells us a lot about what the book is about. Uh, But first, let me say a welcome to the show, Jay Ryan. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's wonderful to be here. Jay Ryan is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, and national bestseller, The Logger Queen of Minnesota. Another great title. I really like that one. His writing has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Granta, The Rumpus, and The Los Angeles Review of Books. His debut, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, won the American Booksellers Association Indies Choice Award for Adult Debut Book of the Year. He was born and raised in Minnesota, and he now lives in California with his family. And I did want to say a few more things about the third novel, the one that came out this year and that we're going to talk about Saturday night at the Lakeside Supper Club. It was uh, published by Viking Pamela Dorman Books in April, and it became an instant national bestseller. It debuted at number 11 on the National ABA Indie Bound list, number seven on the Los Angeles Times list, and was the number one selling hardcover fiction book among independent bookstores in the Midwest during its first week of release. Roxanne Gay called it a perfect book, and it received glowing reviews from NPR, People, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the St. Paul Pioneer Press, Minnesota Public Radio, Taste Magazine, AARP Magazine, and Kirkus, where it earned a starred review. And then in September, it was named a finalist for the Heartland Booksellers Award in Fiction, and the German language rights uh, were sold. So congratulations on a very successful debut, I think especially for a third novel. Oh, yeah. I was shocked. I thought people would have forgotten about me by now. (laughs) Yeah, it takes me long enough to write a book that I feel, oh, boy, like the winds have changed. People want to read other stuff. They've moved on to other things. So I'm really thrilled when a book comes out and I see people I haven't seen before. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about this novel. I actually listened to it as an audio book, so I think my experience is, you know, perhaps a little bit different than somebody who reads it. But I did enjoy it very much. And if you can picture me wandering around the canyons of San Diego, listening Mm. to these stories about the restaurants in the Midwest, that's how it was. I really enjoyed it. That's beautiful. I wrote most of the book in the hills of Burbank. So <laughs> yeah, I well, wandering around and hiking up here on the Verdugo Trail. Yeah. So I, I also had to use my imagination a lot uh, writing during the pandemic. I didn't get to go to supper clubs most, <laughs> most of the time while writing this book. So I really had to 
like you, like some of my own images of them from memory and conjure up the scenes uh, from that as opposed to my usual boots on the ground research, which propelled the scenery in my first two books. Yeah, that's right. There is something quite different about that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not fantasy, obviously, but there is something nostalgic, right? Sort of going back in time in your own mind, right? And thinking of those cultures and experiences. So yeah, it takes a certain, you know, imagination, right? Even though it's real to to uh, put that on the page. But it was very successful in doing that. I was definitely transported from the canyons of San Diego. Oh, wonderful. The plot is oriented around two restaurants. Uh, so can you kind of contrast them for us and explain how they're different and how they're the same? Yeah. Uh, the first restaurant, the restaurant of the title, is the Lakeside Supper Club, which has existed for almost 100 years by the time the reader gets acquainted with it. And that's not terribly unusual for a supper club. It's really unusual for a restaurant of any kind in the mm -hmm. U.S., but if any restaurants can have that kind of staying power, it's going to be a Midwestern supper club, which tend to be family owned and operated and tend to stay in the family or get sold to another family. Unlike a lot of real estate in this country, there's no conglomerates or corporations that own bunches of supper clubs. Uh, I think it would be weird. It would be really weird if there were, since so much of what the appeal is to me and many other people who have frequented them is their not just independence, but their what's the word? inimitability <laughs> yeah individuality maybe uh, yeah perfect yeah. perfect mm -hmm. yeah they are they are the thumbprint of their community populated you know by locals they tend to be the preferred third space for locals uh by third space i mean a place outside of work or home where people congregate and have meaningful interactions uh, particularly the bar and supper clubs the price points of the meals well generally considered a good value in the midwestern sense are still like high enough that you probably wouldn't go there regularly to eat. They remain kind of special occasion places for most locals. Uh, but the bar, meanwhile, is usually a preferred watering hole for a set of uh, <laughs> set of people who maybe could walk there, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> and walk home. Yeah. Right, right, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, safely. And the other restaurant is Jorby's, which I loosely based on the Midwest diner chain Perkins, uh, but oh, would I have kept, some. I kept trying to figure it out. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, I didn't guess. Yeah, Perkins and Embers were kind of the two models for that. Embers is no longer with us. Perkins is hanging on. But yeah, if you've been to a Denny's, you get the drift. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have been to a Perkins or Embers specifically to conjure up Jorby's. It's that kind of, you know chain corporate family restaurant that has its place. Yeah. I spent an awful lot of time at the Perkins in my hometown, largely because it was open 24 hours a day and extremely tolerant of teenagers hanging out in there in the middle of the night, drinking only coffee mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe sure. ordering French fries, a side of fries, having the bill for a three and a half hour sit be just under $10. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't imagine right. there There's is a, a place there's yeah, yep. yeah. And that's, that's needed too in a community, a third space for people who uh, either can't hang out in a bar yet, or wouldn't want to, or uh, just need a kind of a hassle free environment, <laughs> particularly outside of home where you can talk freely. These two places are at points set in opposition to each other in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, but at times, it's clear that they coexist. 
Mm-hmm. And they did in my community or still do in my hometown of Hastings, where there's still a Perkins and a separate club called Wiederholz about 10 miles or so south that, as far as I know, are still each quite popular to this day. My mother's family is all from Wisconsin, a tiny mm. town in northern Wisconsin, and they've all stayed there. My cousins are all still there, essentially on the same street, too. Uh, which is which is quite interesting, you know, just the the cultural aspects of that. But there's a restaurant there that they like to go to, which is right on the edge of the lake. Um, it's a tiny town, and my aunt was a high school teacher, and her husband was the principal of the high school. Mm. So you know, they were extremely well known in the community. And they would kind of go there and sort of hold forth, right? You know, everybody would come and stop by their table and say hi. Um, So it was super interesting to go to that restaurant with them. It was a little bit like going to church because, I don't know, just the the routine of it, the rhythm of it. And then they would go religiously, you know. um, Mm. Yeah, if if I can use that word, absolutely. Yeah, it, you know, it was it was sort of mandatory to go there, but they enjoyed it, of course, very much. So I really perked up in the book when I heard the narrator said something about Wisconsin supper clubs. Mm-hmm. And so, are they known to be different in some way? Oh, they're known to be preeminent. I'll freely admit that Wisconsin is the capital state of supper clubs. They may not have invented them per se, but they have the most and they have the probably the most strict guidelines in terms of what constitutes a supper club in terms of consistency from one place to another. Mm. Now, which is not to say there aren't variations on the theme. There are plenty of German themed supper clubs like the Dorfhaus. There was a Turkish themed supper club called Turks Inn in Hayward, which probably could have been fairly close to the small town your relatives live in. It's pretty far north in Wisconsin. And among those consistencies are brandy old fashions. You can have them sweet, mm-hmm. sour, or press. Uh, press being a combo of sweet and sour. Those are generally the variations you're asked when you order an old fashioned. You're not asked whether you want brandy. It's what kind of brandy. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. And uh, fish fries on Fridays, prime rib on Saturdays, free relish trays. They they should be free anyway. Some places are starting to charge for them, but I maintain that sitting down at a restaurant, getting a plate of free food is one of the things that make a supper club a truly magical experience and accentuates the value, the sense of value you get, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're treated like a guest in a home instead of a customer in a transactional relationship. Where else does someone just give you free food, you know, just Mm -hmm. for being there, just for showing up? And I've, I've always loved that. Yeah. And it's, you know, relish tray also varies from place to place. It's usually a assortment of cold vegetables and cheese uh, dips, but it can contain stuff like pickled herring, pickled chicken gizzards, uh, <laughs> you name it. Yikes. I don't remember that. <laughs> really depends on the owner. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say ch- pickled chicken gizzards are a staple. I've only heard of one place that's done it. And that was in Southern Wisconsin near Beloit. But Mm. it just goes to show that even a relish tray will have the mark of the individual owner on it. So your books are kind of old school. You know, it it was neat, as I say, to be transported back to the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. I was born in. I'm from Southern Indiana. Oh, fantastic. I I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, but uh, my parents moved to Indiana 
when I was still fairly young. So that that's my hometown, what I consider my hometown. But I spent yeah. a lot of time in Wisconsin. And so, mm. you know, these, and my grandmother actually lived in uh, Minnesota for most mm. of her adult life. Oh, where? Uh, she was in Minneapolis. So it was, you know, it was nostalgic since I'm from the Midwest, right, to to yeah. listen to the book. But there are things in there that it, from a modern perspective, you know, might raise an eyebrow. It starts right off the bat with a discussion about uh, eating venison, eating mm -hmm. uh, deer, roadkill deer. Yeah, well, so long as it's fresh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, people smoke in your book. Shocker, right? Um, and of yeah. course, a lot of discussions about hard liquor. And mm -hmm. so I, I was curious if you had any concerns that this kind of ethos or culture would experience some resistance from publishers as you put the, sent the book out. Well, I hoped it wouldn't <laughs> because I feel it was an honest portrayal of restaurant culture at the time. A good portion of the book takes place in 1996 when smoking was still legal indoors in restaurants, mm. much to the peril of much of the staff. Definitely poor people. And regulars. So I really wanted to write about that since it contributes to the health and fate of one of the major characters inspired in part on uh, my own life. So yeah, I, I hope they wouldn't pull it out in the name of ooh, either political correctness or modern values. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, transposing themselves on the past. I don't mind certain generous revisions of the past, but in this case, it was actually important to the plot that people smoked indoors. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, like my previous two books, they're about adults that work in the food industry. So there's swearing. There's <laughs> there's uh, shocker. <laughs> there's liquor. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a YA book. That said, there are still people whose sensibilities were offended by it, even Midwesterners. My grandmother hated my first book uh, because oh, wow. of the language. Yeah, she told me to my face she'd never recommend it to any of her friends. Because of the language. The language, yeah, yeah the, in my debut. Uh, the subsequent two books haven't had quite as much swearing, but largely because the characters haven't been that type of person. Mm -hmm. It hasn't felt necessary to me in terms of the character's voice, which it did in the first book where I had a very salty character and he just you know she just spoke that way and we all know people who do sure i guess not everyone wants to read about them but that said i did feel in my first book in particular where i was purporting to capture a more general realm kitchens of the great midwest i wanted that realm to accompany similarly diverse characters including midwestern characters that don't seem as familiar to people outside the midwest or aren't consistently presented as midwestern Mm. One of those characters being a particularly salty, foul-mouthed teenage softball player. <laughs> I've known people like that. <laughs> yes, I, I have too. In the Midwest. Yeah, so, sure. Even if grandma doesn't like it, I yeah. felt I wanted to honestly portray might of culture. <laughs> and, and that extends to the milieu of the third book where, yeah, it certainly pretends some practices and behaviors that we don't value as much today. I know some people were offended right off the top by Mariel hitting a deer in the first 10 pages and put the book down, threw it against the wall, threw it away, burned it. But I know just about everyone in the Midwest knows someone who's hit a deer. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I wish it weren't so commonplace. My dad has hit at least three in his life. Now, he spent the entire balance of his 
74 years in the Midwest. So his uh, odds are a little greater than mine. I've spent over half of my life outside the Midwest, but it's quite common. And what is almost as common is trying to put it to use. Yeah, <laughs> if, sure. if you've got the know-how, like, hey, I can't let this go to waste. <laughs> Which is a very Midwestern value. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, my siblings and I now have inherited my dad's property in Southern Indiana. And mm. it, it uh, contains a lot of deer, as does that whole surrounding area. And it was fascinating to me to read the reports from the um, Indiana departments that deal with wildlife, fish and wildlife, the statistics that they keep about deer counts and also vehicle deer collisions, because they really try to uh, temper the hunting licenses that they give out to correspond with that, because it is such a, it, it's such an issue, right? Hitting deer, very dangerous, obviously terribly dangerous for the deer but also very dangerous for the drivers. So yeah, Absolutely. I was quite fascinated. It, 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 this is a huge issue in, in Southern Indiana is the deer population. And also there's a lot of concern, you know, when there's too many deer that they get sick. Mm. Yeah, it's just not good for the deer for there to be an overpopulation. Right, right. But the people who uh, hunt in Southern Indiana usually eat the deer that they kill. Yeah. Some of these things get lost, I think, sometimes in translation between the Midwest and, and the coasts. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Really quick, are you familiar with the chef Paul Farabach? He just wrote a book called Midwestern Food. He's a chef. He's from southern Indiana, but uh, currently works in Chicago. And his book, Midwestern Food, covers quite a bit of southern Indiana. Y you'll find some regionally specific recipes in it if, if you're familiar with that region. So, oh, okay. yeah. I yeah, I, I suggest like next time you're at the bookstore, go uh, check it out, pick it up and uh, especially turn to the desserts area. Uh -huh. It's 50 pages. It's longest. It's, in my opinion, it's not long enough, even if it's the longest section of the book. And <laughs> most of the desserts, or I'd say close to two thirds, have um, their origins in southern Indiana. So you'll see things familiar to you, perhaps. Uh, oh, how more cool. so than other Midwestern readers. Oh, excellent. Yes, little marshmallow jello salads. And <laughs> <laughs> well, we had those in Minnesota too. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother used jello as a mule for vegetables. Uh, you know, she there you go. Slice up carrots and you know, those uh -huh. shredded carrots like shredded in a lime carrots. green jello. And, yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's really funny. Yeah, how food is is so intertwined with culture. So I wanted to ask you, you know, since you're here now in California on the West Coast, was it hard to write about the Midwest when your surroundings were so different? Uh, maybe it was easier. Hmm. Yeah, not being surrounded with it and not feeling overwhelmed by just the details of life. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Instead, I've undertaken strategic visits to the Midwest, often for book-related reasons. And while there, I just kind of soak it in, take notes, take photographs. And I think I'm a little more attuned to the environment than I would be if I were living it and I had either mental shortcuts or heuristics or whatever you want to call it, interrupting my perception of the environment. I feel that I perceive things more minutely as a visitor. Mm -hmm. and hear things that stand out to me in language 
um, particularly as a visitor, things I'm not accustomed to hearing in Southern California that suddenly stand out to me, even if they wouldn't have stood out to me for the first 19 years I lived in the Midwest. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd argue it's a slight benefit, provided I still get to visit often. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. I can totally imagine that. Yeah, when you're in it, you don't really hear it. You don't see it because it's just everyday life. It's in the visit or sometimes your memories, right, where things stand out. But, oh, that was, yeah, that was kind of unusual how we did things back then. Yeah. Okay, so to talk a little bit more about the book, it, it features multiple female characters of multiple generations. And they're usually related uh, in some way or by marriage or by blood. Mm -hmm. And I did have to chuckle toward the end of the book. You finally get to the fourth generation. I mean, it's just fascinating to watch your treatment of these different generations and keeping their characters and voices distinct. Um, but yeah, when you got to the fourth generation, I was like, okay, now he's just showing off, right? <laughs> like four, okay. <laughs> but do tell me how challenging was it to to deal with the so many different generations? Well, what made it easier for me was writing each one as a discrete unit. It was challenging because there were very different voices, mm -hmm. different environments reacting to those environments differently with different restrictions or boundaries on their reactions or their expectations, either from within or without. So I wrote each character completely, like I wrote all of Mariel's chapters, then I wrote all of Florence's, then all of Ned's, then all of Julia's, and then figured out how to blend them together later. So that that helped. Yes. Kind of keeping it straight in my head and not having to shift between the voices like the readers do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I did my best to orient the reader at the top of each chapter, but some readers, I understand, are still confused by the POV shifting, even though it's quite common in novels nowadays. Most of my favorite novels have it. Yeah, it is really common. And I think it's really common to get confused, to tell you yeah. the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when I read it, when I read books like that, you know, I often discover, uh, you know, I'm a couple of paragraphs in and it's like, oh, wait, where am I? Who, wait, who's talking? And so I'll just quickly glance up, you know, it was just a flash, right? You don't even probably realize that you're doing it. In an audiobook, you can't do that. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so that's, it's, I realized later, yeah, it's, these techniques that we're using for print are sometimes a little bit challenging to translate to the audio because readers are, you know, we're just accustomed to like flipping back, right, to look at something. What's this guy's name again? Oh, yeah, right. Now I'm, but you can't do that with an audio. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel with my first book, there were alternating male and female narrators for male and female characters. And that oriented the listener a little more aptly. Whereas this current book just has one narrator for each, covering all characters, male or female, old or young. And that probably also didn't help in terms of interpretation or discernment of different voices yeah but but yeah. that said i do i still hear from readers who got through it just fine with oh yeah yeah <laughs> oh yeah i yeah. would say it wasn't a big problem i mean you've done a really good job at giving them different voices and of course there are enough clues usually in the context that you sorted out um, pretty fast right no mm -hmm. i i wouldn't say that i was confused for any particular length of time but there were a few times when it was like wait what yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. 
So these characters have mixed feelings about the supper club. So uh, mm -hmm. some of the characters love it. Almost seems like it alternates from generation to generation. Yeah. So some of the characters love the supper club and uh, really want to preserve it, and then others are want to run from that supper club mm. just as far and fast as they can. Yeah. So, so was it fun to to uh, treat the supper club from these different points of view? Oh, absolutely. I felt it was incumbent on me to do so, especially after interviewing a number of supper club owners oh. who either came from families who had differences of opinion among their siblings or relatives as to who wanted to inherit it and or have children who are more or less enthusiastic than they were about inheriting it. And I find that was quite common among supper club families that it was both a blessing and a burden, depending on who you asked, that certain people raised in that culture or in that environment fell in love with it and others thought i want to get as far away from this place as possible <laughs> yeah after uh oh maybe a half a childhood and teenage years spent doing uh free or low-pay restaurant work for my family i'm not eager to spend the balance of my life appended to the same task so i'm leaving and others felt like oh wow how lucky of me to not have to worry about what am i going to do with my life i've got it right here for me and all i have to do is learn it as a youth and then have a have that apprenticeship that those trials by fire and then be ready to take it over from my parents when they're ready to pass it along to me so part of that dynamic creates owners who are looking for that eager heir and right. yeah mm -hmm. so in some cases there are generations willingly passed over because they're discerned to be poor stewards of the enterprise <laughs> so i felt like uh i wanted to capture that uh since it was uh, an honest portrayal from my research of how things went and how things are yeah i can imagine that's a really good description of a blessing or a burden right not a curse Mm. But yeah, this sense of no. responsibility, especially, you know, as the as the legacy grows, right? Right, right. And now it's been in the family for, you know, th three generations, four. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the burden grows because it because its history has grown. Right, especially in a place like that, whose appeal is somewhat stuck in the past, where there's an aggressive resistance to evolution for what i'd say is not entirely selfish reasons i'd say part of the appeal of a lot of separate clubs is their kind of timeless old timiness mm -hmm. like Definitely. most of them have evolved at least in decor and style of food either so slowly or not at all that they've become kind of hip again that maybe they were hopelessly outmoded in the 80s and 90s and now it's like wow yeah like like this decor that has basically remained unchanged since the 60s or 70s is now incredibly hip <laughs> it's really funny isn't yeah it? It is. yeah it's yeah. really funny well let's talk about food so mm. i detected some uh sort of you know conflicting emotions about the food uh at the supper clubs these kind of i think you might call it gray and brown food or or brown yeah. food something like that yeah, you know meat, potatoes <laughs> yeah, you know Earth maybe yeah. maybe a tiny tiny piece of parsley a tiny piece of green might grace the plate versus you know newer food that we have now especially in california fresh oh, yeah. and vibrant colors and yeah a lot of crunch um mm -hmm. so so yeah so is this a is this a personal uh, issue with you, your relationship with food, how it's reflected in this book? 
I think so. I, I personally like both. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in Southern California at the bottom end of the country's most agile agricultural system. And I enjoy the benefits of that. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful eating here. But that said, I grew up a Midwestern eater and I go back often and I enjoy a supper club meal. I would say that my diet more regularly consists of fresh vegetables than prime rib <laughs> uh-huh. for, for a number of reasons. Uh, yeah. But that said, I, I want to live in a society where both are options and or neither one is like priced out to consumers or segregated or delegated in a way that is pejorative. I didn't want to make judgment calls on either that were authorial, that were outside of the voices of the characters. I mean, my characters uh-huh. certainly have differences of opinion on each, but I intended those to be kind of proxy votes on <laughs> the differing opinions and contradictions that I hold and or the readers hold. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to get it all out there in a book and not really say, hey, there's a good guy or a bad guy, because I don't believe there is. <laughs> Even though from a commercial standpoint, from a capitalist standpoint, I generally try to support independent or family-owned businesses over international conglomerates when possible, i.e. shop at independent bookstores instead of Amazon. And when given uh, a choice of where to eat and say, Hayward, Wisconsin, I'm going to eat at the Supper Club and not the Subway or the Arby's or the or the Perkins. Yeah. So in terms of voting with my own dollars, I opt for the independent family-run franchise. And I think that comes across. I think I do come down a little harder on Jorby's than I actually feel I do in my own life. Hmm. Yeah, I did posit Jorby's as more of a little bit more of an antagonistic realm vis-a-vis the supper clubs and vis-a-vis American society or Midwestern society than I actually feel it is. But that said, we do make choices of how to spend our money and people aren't really making more supper clubs. So that said, there have been a few popping up in Minneapolis and a couple other cities. But that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Or at least restaurants that harken back to supper clubs in terms of their milieu and dining choices there there are important other differences i don't need to get into here but i do feel like there's a renewed interest in supper clubs and not a moment too late since it was a business style that wasn't really covid ready (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. as rest as restaurants go it's it's not a restaurant that you'd even think about getting takeout from right uh, since so much of the appeal is the milieu and being there and being in that environment spending two, three hours there, and sometimes, you know, uh, entertainment after your meal. So I felt like, oh boy, I couldn't think of many other genres of restaurant that were as threatened by the pandemic as restaurants like Supper Club, since they were so reliant on in-person community stewardship and participation. But a number of them did, and I'm glad my book came out when it did to perhaps incite readers to check out whether if there was a supper club or a place like it in their own area and to Mm -hmm. frequent that place and to do their best to keep it going. You know, it's funny. I didn't think about that at all when I was listening to the book, but I think it absolutely had that effect on me, partly Mm. because of the sense of community that you describe, uh, especially around the supper club in Bearclaw, you know, a Mm -hmm. fairly small town there in your book. Um, But you get such a sense of why people gather together over drinks and food and what that feels like. And I have to say, yes, just for me personally, it was like, 
yeah, you know, we should go out more. <laughs> you know, we, mm. Yeah, we should mix more. We, sh we should see what's happening in our local restaurants. Yeah, it definitely had that effect on me. So it was, a, yeah, a little propaganda, but, but pretty subtle because I didn't realize how effective it was. So tell me about the community in that supper club. Was that modeled after something in your own life? Yeah, it's loosely modeled after my own hometown, which is uh, Hastings in southern Minnesota. Not too similar to um, the lake country that uh, Bear Jaw is set in, which I'd say is somewhere between Bemidji and Brainerd, a good three plus hours north of Hastings in real life. Okay. Um, yeah, so the environment is somewhat different, but the society isn't so much. I mean, well, Brainerd Lakes area, Bemidji is certainly has quite a bit more tourism in the summer than Hastings does. But that aside, in terms of the locals and the environment and society that the locals engender for themselves, I see a lot of similarities. Like the society at the bar is kind of modeled on my mom and her friends. Mm -hmm. And they frequented a bar in Hastings called then called McCabe's Pub, which was walking distance from our house. And uh, I always kind of wanted to capture that sense of, you know, people going to, <laughs> to quote, perhaps the most famous piece of entertainment about a bar, the place where everybody knows your name, and just how missed that was during the pandemic and how important it is for so many of us to have a place outside of home or work or church that we can go to and have our values and our likes and dislikes and feelings just reflected back at us and encounter information about what's going on in the community of what's going on with people or businesses directly through word of mouth as opposed to via the internet or you know via the increasingly disappearing hometown newspapers i feel like it's a tremendous asset that kind of goes unremarked I felt so motivated to write about it while cooped up in my own <laughs> mm -hmm. pandemic rabbit hole that right? I felt like this is exactly the kind of thing I want to be doing as soon as I can, going to places like this and having these conversations. Yeah, I, I'll just throw this in here too. I might have to edit this out. Mm. But you know, I my mother was a uh, local politician. And mm. so she hung out a lot in places like that where, you know, she could meet with people. And so as her kid, I was always hanging around in the background and listening to these people talk. And often they were not in agreement about politics, mm. but it was a way to work out your differences and to understand each other. And, you know, sometimes it would get a little heated, but it was never abusive, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that kind of conversation between people who don't always agree about every little thing, but who have a chance to be heard and to express themselves, I think that's really important. I think we're, or at least I'm learning, or I think that that's really important. And that's something that we're not doing well with social media, where we tend to fall into kind of a rabbit hole of people who all think alike. And then there's just, you know, a lot of expression of hatred toward anybody who's not in your little, you know, whatever, your your, your little group. And mm -hmm. so that, you know, I think it might turn out that it's actually pretty important for people to mix in a place like a supper club or a bar or um, a drugstore uh, milkshake counter so that they can have that kind of communication as I say, I, I might have to edit this part of the podcast out, but it makes me think, I think you've touched on something that's actually 
really pretty critical to a society functioning well. Right, right. It's just having that knowledge that permits you to humanize people that aren't like yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even if they share a lot of superficial characteristics, if their ideology or religion or what have you is different, uh, it's really easy in this isolated realm to other them sometimes, like with great, I don't know, unfortunate vigor, <laughs> mm-hmm. that that would make an in-person reaction be unpleasant or even violent. I feel like I miss that too. I miss that sort of matter of fact realm of Midwestern society where it's highly likely you interact with people of different, at least ideological or political stripes uh, quite regularly. And I felt like politics was less polarized and polarizing than perhaps as part of that, since you knew people you disagreed with and you you know, you didn't want them to die because they disagreed with you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And right. you'd still take, you know, if you, if their kid got in trouble, you'd still help their kid. I mean, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You'd still help them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and also you'd realize that the disagreements perhaps weren't always so severe or what's the word encompassing, like that most people have shades of gray. Like mm-hmm. very few people are fully dyed ideologues of their cause. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. That there is subtlety. And at the very least, there's, room for nuance and understanding and listening that I think people increasingly understand that they're in a rabbit hole, feel okay with that. And one of the problems with that is that they understand, at least on a subconscious level, that the other side isn't listening, that they're not being heard, that they're not getting their point across. For some people, it seems that free speech means the ability to say whatever I want and have people agree with me. You must agree. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I and I think that's sort of an unfortunate mutation of having people who disagree with you even listening to you and responding and responding in a humane or at the very least tolerant way. And we yeah, we miss that. We miss those brief interactions. I mean, I remember my parents who are of different political stripes themselves having a quite an array of political opinions across the spectrum of their friends and none of it being exclusive. Yeah, same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas that seems less likely now. Yeah, could be. Could be, yeah. I, I, I hope it isn't. I mean, I, I say that living some, in somewhat of a bubble myself. I mean, I do have conservative friends, but none here in California that I know. <laughs> they could be very well hidden or very secretive. Which, unfortunately, right now, they probably are. They probably right? are. Yeah. yeah, at least in L.A. County. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, our, in our milieu. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I suppose when you're that outnumbered, you know, it may not do, you know, to uh, be too flagrant about your opinions, depending on how how suited you are to upholding them publicly. That said, I, I when I go on book tour, I spend a lot of time in places like Iowa and South Dakota, where I'm among people whose politics I agree with, who feel outnumbered in their communities. And, mm-hmm. you know, nonetheless, feel like, hey, I'm not leaving, you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm sticking it out here. I'm judging my victories incrementally and the people around me are not, you know, they're quite a bit often more nuanced than, you know, CNN or Fox would have you believe. Let's just, of course. Yeah. You know, the agree to disagree realm is not always going to end in <laughs> a neighborliness or violence. Uh, so I feel it's really cool to go out and have the opportunity to see these parts of the country that still 
to me, are underrepresented. And when they are represented, it's unfortunately in the heat of something like the Iowa caucuses, where you just understand it through a political realm that, well, not inaccurate, is extremely incomplete. <laughs> yeah, extremely incomplete. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, well, yeah, I definitely landed on something about your book that I hadn't thought about before. But Yes, I'm, again, just going to mention to my listeners, I think you might really enjoy this book for these things that we're talking about here today. Uh, you know, a little bit of a view of something either in the past or something that we miss or something maybe that we should support now because it's uh, it's important for for society and for our culture and maybe for our species too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the writing. The book is, you know, as I say, this kind of dizzying swing from character to character and year to year. And I mentioned that I had um, a realization that, yeah, audiobooks are pretty hard. So you mentioned that you'd written the different characters as a piece. And so mechanically, like, what was it like to keep that straight and then to try and put them back together? Mm. Wow. Well, it wasn't a problem keeping them straight while I was writing them. But when I started blending them together, there were a lot of <laughs> differences of opinion, both within myself and between myself and my editors over oh. how to tell the story. So there was a lot of moving around. These parts became pretty fungible. I had the idea for the ending kind of late. I knew what the last scene was going to be, and it became increasingly obvious to me as I was writing that Mariel was not going to be the primary character in that scene, uh, at least not the, you know, the point of view character. Uh, so I felt like I had to step back and reassess the whole narrative when I decided to represent that fourth generation uh, through a point of view character. Yeah, that took some doing because I thought, well, do I open and close with this? Do I like bookend the book with Julia? It didn't really make a lot of sense to put any of Julia's chapters earlier than they were, since they come so much later and they, they have the benefit and drawback of a character whose life intersects very few other characters <laughs> um, that you've met along the way. Because she's so young. Yeah, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. She's really inherited a realm that is quite different than the realm we've come to know. Yes, as as readers as yeah mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and so it's a, been a probably a little disorienting for readers and some readers have expressed to me that they felt those final two chapters were unnecessary or were distracting or you know the book would have been better if it just ended with mariel hmm. and I, well i disagree i think that's that's fine yeah. yeah i i couldn't imagine the book without julia once i'd written her mm -hmm. yeah well it definitely but, brings us up into modern time which i think is you know, yeah. that, that's that's a that's a pretty important goal for a book. I like that. I would think to make yeah. that bridge right up to right. Mm -hmm. Who yeah. was your favorite character to write? Oh wow, uh, two. I really loved writing Florence and Julia. Uh -huh. Those two oh, were the and easiest. Julia. Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah, I wrote Julia in just a couple days. It was she was really easy to write. She came very easy to me. Ha! Huh. I wonder if that's partly because she is modern. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I certainly know people like her. She's got a lot of me in her. I see. Okay. And Florence isn't like me at all, at least I don't believe. So ask readers who meet me that <laughs> how much I resemble Florence in terms of behavior, language. Uh, but no, she was tremendously fun to write. I had a blast every day I sat down to write Florence. 
Yeah, she's a great character. Really great character. Great voice. So this is your third novel kind of on this theme and just remarkably successful commercially, critically, everything, you know, congratulations. It, it's people, this really resonates with people, which I think is, is so great. Um, obviously, there's an audience uh, for these food and drink related books. So do you think you'll keep going in this theme? Uh, for now, it seems like I may. I haven't started writing my fourth book yet, but most of the ideas I've had for it are oriented around food or beverage mm -hmm. again in some way. So it's most likely mm -hmm. when I, one of the questions I ask myself when I sit down to write is what do I want to learn? Yeah. It's often food related. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> it just happens to be that I don't want to learn about geology or oil drilling or furniture manufacturing, at least yet. I, I find myself consistently drawn to those those realms of human experience and want to learn about them. So I create characters that need to learn about them and they teach me. Well, there's something really human about food, right? And, mm. and community and our rituals around food, right? But yeah, yeah. in a way, for, it's just an excuse to write about humans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And for the most part, it remains one of those aspects of society that's for the most part, apolitical. Yeah. You know, or at the very least transcends politics and, you know, Everyone's got to eat. You know, you can certainly make political decisions or be guided by your politics in terms of what you choose to eat. But there are certain things that it seems everybody seems to like. <laughs> yeah, I might say guided by your values in terms of what you choose to eat. Right. I, I It does Absolutely. seem as though, yeah, we, one thing we could maybe not politicize is food. But but, it do, you know, it, you, it does reflect your values. Right. And, oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Like, like if you go to the store and buy carrots, whether you buy carrots from a farmer's market, if you go to a supermarket and buy the organic carrots, you know, I mean, those can feel like political decisions, even if they might be more driven by uh, health concerns or environmental concerns. Yeah, it's unfortunate that divisions politically in our country have become quite septic <laughs> mm -hmm. and, 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 quite, and quite widespread into realms that generally until now had had managed to uh, stay political. But I think that's one of the things that you've done in your book, which which I really enjoy is uh, the pleasure of food, right? Really comes across. Yeah. And the pleasure of, of drink too, that really comes across uh, in the book. Yeah, it, which is really, you know, it's enjoyable. It's one of the pleasures of, of life. I know, I know, I agree. I, I don't want to live in a society where whether or not you enjoy your food is political, whether it's divide over like people who enjoy eating versus people who don't. Uh, <laughs> and, that, yeah. and that adheres to other political boundaries. I don't see that happening. I, I'd be scared of a country in which that existed. No, so maybe it's up to us to right, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> make sure yeah. that doesn't. Hey, happen. let's let's all take a step back from the ledge, folks, and let's enjoy a meal. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, let's just have a drink together. Why not? Yeah. So, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this uh, fun book. And uh, before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience? If you want to refer them to anything or, or talk about an event, this is your time. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I will be returning to the Midwest uh, next year for the Fox Cities Book Festival in Wisconsin. I'll have the information about that on my website pretty soon. I'll be at the Tucson Book Festival at the first weekend of March next year. Oh, if you cool. want to catch me there. And also, for now, for the next 12 or 13 days anyway, Boswell Books in Milwaukee is selling autographed copies oh, of nice. my latest novel. If you want to give one as a Christmas gift, 
that's where to get them uh, and support an independent bookstore in the process. Only one bookstore definitely has autographed copies of Supper Club, and that's Boswell in Milwaukee. So check them out. And uh, I hear they make an excellent Christmas gift for the food lover in your life. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so, so much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.